So today, we're going to be dealing with uh, a subject that actually the Lord has laid on my heart a couple weeks ago, and I felt like it was something for me, you know, because sometimes the Lord will just uh, lay stuff on your heart and talk to you and deal with you about something like really specific, and it's just for you and maybe not for, uh, not to share, but um, when pastor asked me to speak today, uh, I felt like the Lord basically just told me, tell them what I've been talking to you about. So uh, thank you, Brother Don. So we're gonna dive into something um, that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I guess the title of, of the sermon today is Thought Process. So we're gonna be dealing with specifically our thoughts and what the Bible says about our mind. So before we dive into the word, let's just lift up a prayer one more time that God would have his way for the rest of the service. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do. You're so mighty and powerful, God. Your word says that your name is a stronghold and the righteous run into it and are safe. Your word also says that you're our buckler, our shield, you're our defense, God. You keep us safe, Lord. And God, we pray right now that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Help us, God, to deal with our thoughts today, and to understand what your word says about them. We give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Thought process. So let's go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. These are, uh, this portion of scripture right here is a super exciting one, and we get really, really excited, especially about this verse right here. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down strongholds. Verse five, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Verse six, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Thoughts. The Bible actually talks a lot about our mind and our heart, and sometimes it even uses the two interchangeably. If you read in the Old Testament and you see the term uh, heart, like there's a scripture that says the heart is deceitful and wicked and it deceives us and it's, it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible talks about the heart. But then the Bible also talks about the mind or at least thought patterns. Like one of my favorite scriptures, and maybe you guys know this, is Proverbs uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, I believe it is. It's uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not unto thine own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. Talks about thought patterns. So the Bible is, is it, it, at least to God, I will say, I'll say this. To God, it is very important that we deal with our thought process. So thoughts are just an interesting thing in and of themselves. They're, they can be fleeting or they can be lingering. Does anybody have a thought in your head right now? Yes. <laughs> We're constantly, our brains are, the, it, it are an amazing machine that God designed. There's all this electricity running through us. Actually, this is a great picture of a brain. There's constantly electricity running through our neurons and uh, these uh, synapses between the neurons that create these thought patterns. Uh, and throughout the day, you could have uh, anywhere between like six to 10,000 thoughts run through your mind in any given day. The average is about 6,200 a day. But they can always, they could be fleeting or they could be lingering, but thoughts always leave an impression on us. Whatever crosses your mind 
whether it's something quick and you barely recognize that it was a thought or if it's something that takes over your entire day because you're thinking about it. It doesn't matter. Whatever crosses your mind leaves an impact on you. And it actually forms your thought process. So we're probably gonna do this a little bit like spirit life because that's just my style. So there might be a little bit of interaction. I wanted to ask, what is a thought process? Whoever wants to take a stab at it, go ahead. Go ahead. Yes, the way your mind and body interprets what's going on around you. Brother Dean. Right. Yes, a sequence of thoughts that guide you to an end goal. Whether you realize it or not, there is an end goal that your thought process is taking you to. Go ahead, Sister Carolyn. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. That's true. People's words, yes. People's words impact the way that you think, the way that you perceive information. Negativity is probably one of the most common uh, ways that we can look at thought process. Either negativity or positivity is what we're, what we would be dealing with, right? Like we've all heard the glass of milk analogy, right? Whether you look at it like it's half full or half empty. The truth is, you know, we have this thing that that we call like pessimism and optimism. And really those tendencies are built throughout your life, depending on what you've experienced, the words that people have said to you, the thoughts that have come across your mind and what you choose to dwell on. That's very important, what you choose to think about. Because we do have choice when it comes to our thoughts. You don't have to be controlled by your thoughts. The Bible says take into captivity your thoughts. Take control of them and bring them to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We have control over that. But the whole pessimism, optimism thing, we can look at it from these years of experience and what you choose to dwell on will ultimately impact the way you interpret information. Because both are technically right. Either the glass of milk is half full or it's half empty. It's, it's the same, doesn't matter which way you look at it, but the end destination of that thought process is different. Because one will lead you to what we call optimism or positivity or whatever. Don't, don't worry, I'm not talking about the power of positive thought today. We'll get to the real point. But, but the other one could lead to a negative outlook on life or pessimism. So that's what the world, that's how the world looks at the way we think. But God also has a definition and it's actually found right here in this scripture when it talks about taking captive your thoughts. That word for thought uh, in the original language in Greek, if you know anything about me, I like looking at the old languages, but In the original Greek, it doesn't just mean the thought that crosses your mind. It actually means the initial thought 
the emotion that that thought brings, and then the end behavior of the thought. It's talking about your entire thought process, bringing it into captivity. Because what happens here, I heard a preacher talk about this not too long ago, is that a lot of times, you know, we have this saying that I caught a feeling, right? Like I got angry, I I caught that feeling. It's not really the feeling you catch. Really what happens first is a thought comes into your mind. And then that thought creates whatever emotion is behind it. And then those thoughts and emotions combined dictate the way we live, the behaviors that we exhibit. So Jesus is saying, you have to get rid of what's called in Scripture the carnal mind, the fleshly mind. That's all carnal means is fleshly or worldly or humanistic. We have to get rid of that. And take our thoughts captive, bring them into subjection and the obedience of Jesus Christ. Because I will tell you this, if you don't take your thoughts captive, they've already taken you captive. If you can't take, grab a hold of that fear and say, my Bible says, and Jesus says that he is not the author of confusion, but of sound mind. He's not given us a spirit of fear but of love, joy, peace, all this stuff. If we can take those uh, thoughts that seem to control us and bring them to the subjection of Jesus Christ, that is the beginning of the mind of Christ, of having the mind of Christ in us. So uh, 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, again, take captive those thoughts because if you don't, they've already taken you captive. You know, one of the battlefields between the spirit and the flesh happens in our thoughts. Did you know this? That, that is, that's a battlefield between our spirit and flesh. It's right between our two ears. And this is what God was really dealing with me about because I'll tell you the majority of the battles that I fight between my spirit and my flesh takes place right between my ears. It's those thoughts. It's, it's whatever my, my past was that the enemy brings up and says, you know what, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. God can't love you anymore. It's those thoughts. It's those thoughts that creep in when it's dark and I'm sitting in bed at night. I'm gonna be really transparent with you. I hope that's okay. But that's where most of my battle is fought. But you know what I've learned? And this is what Jesus taught me, is that those thoughts, if we allow them, they will build a prison around you. They will take you captive. Fear will paralyze you. But here's the thing. We can choose not to live in fear. We can choose not to live in isolation. We can choose not to live in self-loathing and self-hatred. We can choose not to live there because God has made us more than conquerors over those things. That's just garbage the enemy tries to throw in, or that's just garbage that our flesh tries to tell ourselves when God has already covered you in his blood, when you've already repented and been baptized in the name of Jesus and his spirit is inside of you. That's the only thing the enemy can really do is try and trick you into believing fear and, and, and all these thoughts that want to paralyze you. But we have power over all that. You know what, sometimes it's easier said than done, right? It's easy to say, for a preacher to say, you can conquer this, you can beat this. And sometimes we look at that and say, you know what, preacher, you don't know what I'm going through. 
You don't know where I've been. You don't. But you know what? That's a trick of the enemy too. Because we all lead our own complex lives and we've been through ups and downs and we've been through good and bad and it doesn't matter how severe your bad was or how amazing your good was, we've all been through stuff. And the enemy likes to really try and dig up all that garbage. But it is true. It's true. We'll talk about how you can get past this. I I wanna show you something uh, that's really powerful, and it's in Ephesians chapter six, verses twelve through thirteen. Twelve and thirteen. I'm going to read this in the amplified amplified version. Does anybody else read the amplified Bible? Man, I really like it. I really like it. I think one of the things I enjoy the most about it is that it's really good about showing you what's in Scripture and then what's a little bit extra explanation. But I'll show you this. Look at look at this Scripture. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood. Everything that you see in in parentheses or those brackets, that's what the Amplified Bible has added to give you a little more clarification. If you see it in brackets, that means it's not original scripture, it's just an explanation. For we wrestle not not with flesh and blood, contending only with physical opponents. We know this. We're not not at war with our neighbor when stuff gets heated. We know this, right? But against the uh, despotisms against the powers, against the master spirits who are the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spirit forces of wickedness in the heavenly or supernatural sphere. That's the battlefield there. It's not with somebody else. It's It's not in the physical. It's the spirits behind the physical. It's it's those, uh, those times where our thoughts and, and the enemy and our flesh try to rise up in our mind and try to war against our spirit or try to convince you, number one, that you're not good enough. That's one of the most common negative thoughts when somebody begins believing in Jesus Christ is you're not good enough. You know why? Because we look at scripture and we see an absolutely perfect God. So the enemy tries to tell you, you know what? God's perfect and you're not worthy to be around him. You know what the truth is? We're really not worthy to be around him. But God came to this earth, walked as a human does. The Bible says he was tempted on all points just as we are. He experienced life. He experienced good, bad, and ugly on this earth. God himself put himself through that so that he could relate. And then he died on this cross, shed his blood, So that even though, you know what, we do mess up and we're not good enough to be around his presence, he doesn't see through his blood. Once he applies that to your life, he justifies you just as if you'd never sinned. That's what justified means, just as if I'd never done it. And he sets you up as a child of God. I mean, how amazing is that? The God of the universe, that blows my mind all the time to think about. The God of the universe that could blink his eyes and extinguish all existence on this planet, destroy the entire universe, chooses to call you a son and daughter, chooses to call you a man or woman of God, chooses to use us. Man, how beautiful. And then verse 13, Ephesians chapter six. Therefore, put on God's complete armor. Here it is. Therefore, put on God's complete armor that you may be able to resist and stand your ground on the evil day of danger. 
and having done all the crisis demands to stand firmly in your place. Another thing that uh, the Amplified Bible adds, to stand firm in your, play, in your place, fully prepared, immovable, victorious. Victorious. This truly is a message of hope because with the mind of Christ in our head and his spirit in our heart, we're able to defeat darkness. We're able to repel those fleshly thoughts. We're able to repel those negative thoughts and the attacks of the enemy as long as we have his mind up here and his spirit in here, you walk in victory every day. If you have his mind up here and his spirit in here, you are victorious. The enemy don't like that message because when you understand that, you're free. Exactly, Sister Carolyn, you're free. You're free. The enemy has no power anymore when you understand how victorious you already are. But man, it's easier said than done. <laughs> you know what? I heard, uh, when I was in Purpose Institute, I heard a, a pastor talk about how, how uh, the enemy works on our thoughts. And he said, think about it. It's like, a, it's like a man standing outside of a window, just throwing little pebbles against that window over over, over, over again. That window will hold for a little while, but eventually that constant wear and tear on that window starts to crack. And if we're not careful, it breaks. If we don't have the armor of God on, we open ourselves up. And that's where the enemy comes in. When that guard is down, when the window breaks, he's got a place to enter. So it's our job to stand firm in his armor, head to toe. Can anybody name the armor of God? I know I put, I put everybody on the spot. Go ahead, Sister Carla. Helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. Loins girt about with truth. Feet shy with preparation of gospel of peace. Shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, amen. I, I, I don't know about you, but that's something I pray every day. I, I just, I would encourage you, go to Ephesians chapter six. Every day when you hit your knees, whether it's in the morning, night, midday, whatever, whenever your prayer time is, pray through that every day. Every day, put on the armor of God. Make sure that it's all over us in the spirit. So that way when the enemy does try and come, like scripture says, when you've done all to stand, when you've done everything that you can do to stand against the wiles of the devil, against the evil day, you'll be able to do it because of the armor of God. It is our defense. And it's a direct connection to God. The armor of God is a direct connection to him because the Old Testament talks about how God is our shield, he's our buckler, he's our defense. It also says that his name is a strong tower where the righteous run into it and are safe. When we have the armor of God, we have God's covering all over us. There's no opening for the enemy anymore. And as long as we have, again, his mind up here, it is spirit in here, the enemy has no power. Take your thoughts captive because otherwise they've already taken you captive. You know, David knew the power of thoughts when you read in Psalms. Let me read to you a couple of scriptures here. Psalm chapter 139, verses 23 and 24. 
This one's in the New King James, it says, or I'm sorry, in the King James. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. He knew how powerful thoughts are. You know, the, you know what the Hebrew word for thought is right there? It's seraph, which means anxieties. It means anxieties. He says, God, search my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And if there's any wicked way in me, get rid of it and lead me into the way of everlasting. Know my anxieties, God. Because negative thoughts like anxiety, fear, depression, whatever it is, uh, eventually breed these behaviors of isolation, apathy, and not exercising faith. When you allow those thoughts to plague you, it will sap the, the spiritual energy right out of you. Psalm 77, 11 through 12 in the King James says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of all thy doings. Another, uh, another translation, the Amplified actually translated, translates it as, I will meditate on thy works and actively speak and think of all your doings. You have to keep your mind on Jesus. That's the only way, that's the only way that this, this battlefield is won. So there's a war raging in everybody's mind. It's the battle between the spirit and the flesh. It's the battle between faith and fear. It's the battle between anxiety and peace. We've all experienced this battle. Whatever you, know, you wanna plug into the battle between X and Y, you can plug it in there because we've all experienced it to some extent. We all have. And you know what? There's actually a really interesting biblical story that I wanna bring up real quick. I know I'm not a yeller like pastor, okay? So feel free to get excited even though I'm not screaming at you, okay? But there, there's actually a very interesting portion of scripture that I wanna bring up uh, and it's a story of Elijah. Y'all all know who Elijah is, right? Y'all all know who this guy is. Before I get there though, I wanna tell you this, the outcome of whatever battle you're fighting, faith, fear, spirit, flesh, whatever it is, the outcome depends on what you are focusing on. If you're focused on fear, that's gonna win. If you're focused on faith, that'll win. If you're focused on your flesh, that'll, be, that'll win. And if you're focused on your spirit, it'll win. The outcome of the battle depends on what you focus on. So 1 Kings, we're gonna start in chapter 19. But can anybody tell me what you know about Elijah real quick? Other than he was a prophet in the Old Testament. <laughs> what do you know about the story of Elijah? Anybody? I know this is uncomfortable for people. I can see people like looking around. They're not used to this in church. <laughs> Go ahead, Sister Carla. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, big showdown, man. This guy, this prophet, he was, he did, God did some incredible things through this guy. Like what Sister Carla talked about, he prophesied that the rain would stop and it did. 
It stopped for how long? Was it three years? Stopped for three years. Imagine that, no rain for three years. And Ahab and Jezebel, Ahab was the king of Israel at that point. Not a good guy. He just wasn't a good guy. And his wife, Jezebel, even worse. She was bad. She was horrible. But then they have this amazing showdown in 1 Kings chapter 18, the Mount Carmel showdown between the prophets of Baal and one prophet of God. There were 450 prophets of Baal against Elijah. Woo, you talk about being outnumbered, 450 to one. That was Elijah. But as the, as the, the events unfold, he basically challenged them and, and called them up to Mount Carmel and said, you know what? We're gonna settle this right here and now and really see who the true God is, whether it's Baal or Yahweh. And he said, Whoever, whosoever God answers by fire, let him be God. And everybody's like, okay, that sounds good. So they're all sitting there. Prophets of Baal, they're crazy. The Bible says they're cutting themselves, they're crying, they're spilling their own blood on this altar and they're crying out to Baal uh, for all of the morning, all the noontime, and most of the afternoon. And Elijah gets some righteous indignation in his belly and says, oh, where's Baal? Is he on vacation? I'm not kidding. I'm putting this into our English today, but this is what he was saying. Is he on vacation? Elijah said, is he traveling to a far country? It, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he doesn't hear you. Like Elijah is really riling these guys up. And you know what? When it was Elijah's turn, he said, go ahead and build the altar out of stone. First off, he repaired the altar, which is a sermon just in and of itself. He repaired the altar that the prophets of Baal broke down. And then he built it with stones. And then he dug a trough around it. And then he dumped, I think it was three barrels of water on it, something like that. It was, the Bible says it was enough water. Remember, they're in a drought, a three-year drought. And he dumps all this water on, on, the, on the sacrifice, enough to fill up that trough that he dug around the altar enough to completely soak everything on the altar. And he prayed a short prayer. Essentially, it summed, just to sum it up, he said, God, prove to everybody here that you are the, the almighty God and answer by fire. And right when he prayed that, the Bible says, fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, consumed the stones of the altar. Imagine how hot that's gotta be to destroy rocks and it licked up all the water as it went up. Man, and you know what? He had an amazing victory right there because you know what everybody's response, all the bystanders, you know what their response was? They fell on their face and said, the Lord, the Lord, he is God. And all 450 prophets of Baal, dead. <laughs> Elijah slew them. That was right at the end of 1 Kings chapter 18. Now 1 Kings chapter 19 shows up. And this is what it says. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them, uh, if I do not make as the life of one of them uh, by tomorrow about this time. It was a death threat. She was saying, you know what? Go ahead and kill me if I don't kill you by tomorrow. She was promising him. You're gonna die, I'm gonna kill you. What a wicked woman, man. 
Um, and then verse three, and when he saw that he arose and ran for his life. This is New King James Version, so if King James is a little bit different, that's why. He ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Ooh, what a stark contrast in the man that we see in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, a broom tree is a juniper tree, if you didn't know that, but he's out in the wilderness sitting under a tree. And he said, God, just take my life. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. He was ready to die. After confronting 450 prophets of Baal, after like proving to them that Yahweh is God Almighty, after God answers by fire and totally does a miracle right in their midst by consuming the entire altar and all the water that he poured down, after proving all that, after this amazing victory on Mount Carmel, now he was ready to die because of Jezebel's death threat because she wanted to kill him. You know, we, we look at that scripture and for us to like look at the difference in mentality between chapter 18 and chapter 19, we're sitting here thinking, Elijah, why are you acting that way? You just saw God like do this incredible miracle. He answered by fire. He did exactly what you told the prophets of Baal he was gonna do. Why are you sitting under a tree wishing that you were going to die? Like for us to read it, you know, it, it, it's, it's much different than living it. Because <laughs> if you're not careful, if you don't take those thoughts captive, you can go from a Mount Carmel experience straight into a wilderness wanting to die. You can. That's what happened to Elijah. We know God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He witnessed that and still went out into the wilderness to die. All those people confessed that, Yah confessed that Yahweh was God Almighty. Man, and just because of this threat. You know what? In reality, he felt completely alone. That was what was going through his mind. He felt like he was the only one serving God in all of Israel. That's why he, he, he felt that way. Even though all those people confessed that Yahweh is God, he still felt so alone. You know, I, has anybody else felt that? You're standing in an entire, you're standing in a crowd and yet you feel completely isolated. Th that was what was in, in his mind right now at this point in scripture. But how how good God is to Elijah. Because if you read a little bit farther, it talks about how he's sitting under the, the juniper tree and he asks God, just go ahead and kill me, take my life, I'm ready to go. And the Bible says that he fell asleep there and an angel came to him and ministered to him, gave him food and water and just sat there with him while he was sleeping. While he was in the most isolating, what he believed to be the most isolating moment of his life, God was there. And the Bible says that he woke up and he ate and he drank and fell back asleep. 
God was giving him rest. His mission was not done yet. Elijah still had stuff he had to do. Because keep in mind, he hadn't met Elisha yet. He hadn't met Elisha. God still had a mission for him to do, but ministered to him while he felt completely alone. And the Bible also says that once he woke up the second time, he ate and drank, and that food and water sustained him for 40 days while he was out in the wilderness. For 40 days, he ran on one blessing from God while he felt completely isolated. Oh, how God ministers to us even when we put ourselves in a prison of fear. Oh, how God ministers to us. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, says this, And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, God said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing? Oh, man, God's grace. Elijah was ready to go. He was done with his mission. He was finished. But God's like, what are you doing? While he's sitting in that prison that he put himself in because his thoughts of fear and isolation. God says, why are you sitting in that prison? You're victorious. Why are you sitting there? But it's so true. I don't know if you've ever experienced that you've had a great victory in God. And then right after, Right after that high, you start to come down off the high, start to feel alone, start to feel like, I mean, I don't know. I, I've, I've experienced that personally. I, I'm just, just think about it. But God is so gracious to us. You know what's really cool um, about the place that he went? He went to Mount Horeb. That's the, that's the mountain that he was at when he found the cave. Do you know that, that same mountain is where Moses climbed to meet the presence of God? Horeb and Mount Sinai are interchangeable in Scripture. They're both the same mountain. I just found it interesting that that is where Elijah chose to go when he felt completely isolated, was the same place that Moses went to encounter the presence of God. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. I'm not saying that's why he went there. I just found that interesting. You know, God knew that Elijah had let his thoughts get the better of him. That's why he asked, what are you doing here? And you know what Elijah's response was? Um, go ahead and go to verse 10. I know I didn't write that one down for you guys, but I just want to read this because this shows you where Elijah's mind, mental state was. So he said, that this is Elijah responding to God. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life isolated. I'm the only one left. They know that you're, you're the one true God, but I'm the only one left serving you. I'm the only prophet left. I'm the only one living for God. I'm, have you ever felt that before? I'm the only one. But you know what? God asked him a second time, what are you doing here? <laughs> and this is one of the coolest revelations of God in the Old Testament, at least to me is that God said, Elijah, go to the mouth of the cave. And Elijah did. He stepped out and he stood on the mouth. The Bible says that he threw his mantle over his face and he went out in, at the mouth of the cave. And he's standing there. And the Bible says that there was a great wind that came through that rent the mountain because it was so powerful. 
And there was an earthquake that came by, and it shook the very foundations of the earth itself. And there was a great fire that passed by the mouth of the cave. But the Bible says the Lord wasn't in any of those things. And then it says, a still, but God was in a still, small voice. The little voice that's left in your head when all the excitement's gone, when all the, you, you know what is really cool about that revelation is that at that time, people believed that in order for a God to interact, I'll, I'll say a God because this was common across all cultures, but in order for a God to interact with humans or with earth, it had to establish its power and show its dominance in a great earthquake or a great storm or great wind, a tornado or something. And that to them was proof that a God had visited them. But you know what God was showing Elijah? I'm there with you, even when there's no great demonstration of power. I'm there with you, even when nobody in the church is shouting. I'm there with you, even when it seems like the Holy Ghost isn't flowing or whatever. God was showing Elijah I'm with you in your isolation. I'm with you when you're by yourself. Just that still, small voice. That is God. What a powerful revelation to Elijah because he felt so isolated. But uh, um, if you fast forward a little bit farther, God asked him after that whole exchange, what are you doing here? And Elijah gave him that same answer. I've been very zealous for you, God. All of the children of Israel have turned their back on you and I'm the only one left. Do you know what's really funny about how, I don't know if it's funny, but it's interesting the way God interacts with him. God did not cater to his feelings of isolation and worry and self-doubt and all this. God didn't cater to that. Do you know what his response was to Elijah the second time he said, I'm the only one left? He gave Elijah a mission. He told Elijah, go and anoint Haziel, over Syria and go and anoint Jehu over Israel and go and find Elisha to anoint to be prophet in your place. That was his response. But do you know what? When God gave him that mission, do you know what was really happening to Elijah? That prison that he built around himself, God opened the door, said, come on, I got more for you to do. You know, because the Bible says uh, in is in Isaiah, sorry, I was getting my words mixed up. In Isaiah, there's a prophecy about how Jesus is going to minister. And it said, for the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. You know, we know this stuff. One of the things that it says is to set at liberty them that are bound. And then the Bible also says in the New Testament, Jesus reads that. And he says, today this scripture is fulfilled because that is a ministry of Jesus to set at liberty them that are bound. And then far, another time in the New Testament says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So when, when God himself was giving Elijah another mission, he opened the prison and said, come out now, get out of the cave, get out of those thoughts, get out of that, that self-doubt, get out of all of that garbage that you've invited into your life. I've got more for you to do. Do you know what is a, an amazing legacy of Elijah? First Kings chapter 19, verse seven says this. 
It shall be, this is God speaking to him, it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. And what it's talking about is those who oppose Yahweh, those who oppose God Almighty. Still that, that core of Baal worship was still there even after this event on Mount Carmel. And it, it, uh, God was telling Elijah, if you complete this mission, your legacy will go beyond you. And ultimately, through Elijah coming out of the cave, that Baal worship was destroyed in a matter of a generation or two. It was completely purged out of Israel because of Elijah's obedience and accepting the invitation to come out of his own prison. And we can read about Elisha, all the powerful, amazing things that Elisha did. He asked for a double portion of Elijah's blessing or uh, anointing, and the Bible shows us that he actually did twice, exactly twice as many miracles as Elijah performed while he was on this earth. Had Elijah stayed in the cave, where would Elisha be? Had Elijah allowed that prison that he put himself in, had he continued to allow those thoughts to take him captive and keep him in captivity where would Hazael be? Where would Jehu be? Where would Elisha be? But God opens the prison. He sets at liberty those that are bound. Preaches deliverance to the captives. So when our fears or our thoughts build a prison around us, God speaks in that still small voice, come out of the cave. Come out of the prison. Can I tell you this? When, when those thoughts start to rise up in your mind, because it does everybody, Still, to this day, you're still loved by God. You're still called. You're still a child of God. No matter what your flesh tries to tell you, no matter what the enemy tries to tell you, you're still powerful. You're still victorious. God is still on you. All you have to do is focus on him, and he will bring the victory. If you feel weak today in the battlefield of your mind, just focus on God. Because what you focus on determines the outcome of the battle. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9 say this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if, <coughs> excuse me, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. It gives us a whole list of things to focus on so that our thoughts so that our carnal mind does not rise up against our flesh. Philippians chapter four, I'll say uh, verse eight. You can write that one down because if you're having trouble finding things to praise God about, there's a whole list of them right there. If you're having trouble finding things of God to focus on, there's a whole list right there. That's why God put it there. It is so important that we keep our thoughts in check. So important. Be anxious for nothing. Don't let anything trouble you. Don't, don't worry about anything. God, he's, he's still Jehovah Jireh. You guys realize this, right? He's still Jehovah Nisi. He still supplies. He still brings victory. He still heals. He still saves. That's the God we serve. He's still alive. 
Be anxious for nothing. There's a psychologist by the name of Dr. Carolyn Leaf who said, stress, anxiety, and negative thoughts damage your brain. Literally, damage your brain. Negative thought process damages the way that you interpret information. Even if something good happens in your life, it, it totally messes with your mind to have a negative thought process. But the opposite is also true. Did you know this? If negative thoughts are like stress, anxiety, all that stuff, if you live in that place, it hurts your brain. But the opposite is also true. That if you live in a place where you can think about things that are pure, righteous, lovely, when you can think about things that uplift your spirit, it promotes healthy brain activity. I love it when science just confirms the word of God. But it literally promotes healthy brain activity. Did you know that people that tend to be more optimistic, this is uh, just statistics I'm gonna throw at you. Feel free to look them up and fact check me. But did you know that people that tend to be more optimistic live longer? They have better health than people who fall on the pessimistic scale, pessimistic side of the scale? Because there really is something to how you allow your thoughts to work on your brain. But you know what? I still didn't answer the question is like, okay, well then how do we? How do we focus on good things? You know, I gave you all the stuff that the Bible talks about. I gave you an example of Elijah where he had a, a really bad thought process and the place it took him and how God takes him out. But I didn't really tell you how do you change your thoughts then? How do you take them captive? Can anybody answer that for me? How do you do it? Prayer? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Amen. Mm -hmm. Right. Amen. 
Right. Amen. Right. Right. Amen. Right. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank you for your testimony already. Thank you so much. Amen. Amen. No, he never gives up. Amen. Right. Amen. That's right. Right. Amen. 
Yeah, we're glad to have you here. I wish uh, everybody online, for the sake of people watching, could have heard the, uh, the testimony. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so everybody pretty much hit it on the head, is what it really comes down to, so how do we rewire our brain? It comes down to prayer, reading of the word, fasting, hearing from God. Here, check this out. These, uh, we can all stand, actually. I'm getting ready to wrap up anyways. Um, these are my two favorite scriptures in the word of God, all-time favorite, I promise you. I know in spirit life I say this is my favorite all the time, but these, I promise you, these are my all-time favorite scriptures. Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Verse two, this is the key. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be like the world. That's what the scripture's saying. Don't be like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't talk like the world, but be transformed. That word for transform right there is the same word that in, at least today in our English language, uh, metamorphosis. It, it, it comes from the Greek word where we get metamorphosis from. And it's, it truly is an ongoing transformation. When we begin to walk with God, when we walk in the spirit, not after the flesh, as the scripture says, and, we, uh, and we're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh, because you know what? If, you, if we're walking in the flesh, you can go and read in, uh, I believe it's Galatians. I don't know. I don't know what chapter it is, but you can read the works of the flesh. And it, they're not great, okay? They're not good, which is why the Bible says walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. So when we begin, sorry, that was a tangent, but when we begin to walk in the spirit, we go on this transformational journey where every step we take, you've, have you ever seen those like little videos where it shows like it's some, you know, like an aging thing. You know what I'm talking about? Like it starts out as a young person and like you can watch it progressively get older. You can watch the person. That's what it's like walking for God, not getting older, but I mean, every step you take, you start to look more and more like Jesus. You start to look more and more like him when we're walking in the spirit, we start to look less and less like ourselves and more like Jesus. So when you start to live for God and you take captive those thoughts that are holding you in prison and you say, you know what? My mind, I'm not gonna think like the world. I'm gonna take those thoughts captive and bring them into subjection and the obedience of Jesus Christ. When we do that, God starts renewing our mind starts transforming our mind to ultimately have the mind of Christ. If you were in spirit life today, Brother Rob talked about that in Philippians, having the mind of Christ, thinking like he does, looking at people the way he does, having the gifts, of the, or not the gifts, but yes, the gifts of the spirit, but I meant to say the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, all of those wonderful things. That's also found in Galatians. But your mind starts getting renewed. And it's a process. It's a transformation. There are times where you may still feel like you're alone and you may those thoughts will continue to creep up. But the thing that the transformation does for you is when those thoughts come back, you're able to recognize it and say, you know what? I'm not alone. Even if everybody else in my life turns their back on me, Jesus is there. 
Easier said than done, I'll be honest. But when your mind is being renewed, that's the way you start to think. That's how your thought process is. You start to think like Jesus Christ. Um, so there, there is a qualification, though, in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Sacrifice is involved in walking with God. There's a, that's the only way you can cut it when you're walking with God is sacrifice is involved. But I'll tell you what, this is the greatest adventure you could ever go on is living for God. The Bible says it's our reasonable service to offer our body as a sacrifice. Reasonable. God gave so much just to have a relationship with us. The least that we could do is live for him with our entire life, is to chase after him with everything that we have. And as we do that, he transforms our mind. He gives us the strength to take our thoughts captive. When we choose to forego the pleasures of the flesh and the sin uh, for the pleasures of God, when we repent, when we're baptized in the name of Jesus, when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, he begins to work on us. And we have to pray and read the word daily. We have to fast. We have to kill our flesh over and over again because the thing about a living sacrifice is that it likes to crawl off the altar. We have to continually put it back on the altar and say, God, I give you everything today. I give you my life today. I give you my mind. I give you my heart. I'm gonna serve you with mind, body, uh, mind, heart, strength, everything that I have. And God begins to transform us. And he gives us a new thought process. Not one after the world, but the mind of Christ. Let's all lift our hands. And I guess for this altar call, if there's anybody that's um, just struggling mentally, like if there's anybody that's like in the middle of that battle in your mind, if you're experiencing thoughts that are telling you you're not good enough, if you're experiencing thoughts that tell you you're alone in your struggle, if you're experiencing thoughts that, that uh, of self-worthlessness, of self-doubt, whatever it is, you know what? Let's just pray right now. Because by the power and the authority in the name of Jesus, I bind every negative thought, every thought that would try and build a prison around every saint in this house. I cast it out in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray right now that you would send peace, comfort, love, a strong mind into every saint here today. In the name of Jesus and everybody online, if anybody is struggling today, give it to God Almighty because the Bible says... We cast our cares on him so he can care for us because he cares for us. He's just standing there right now with his hand stretched out to you saying, just give it to me. Come out of the prison. Come out of the cave, Elijah. That's the challenge that I'm issuing to people today. Come out of the cave, Elijah, because God still has work for you to do. God still has a purpose for your life. God still has a plan for you. He loves you so much. Like what Sister Carolyn said, you are too close to the mountaintop to give up now. You're so close. Let's just have a moment with God right now. Every, every eye closed. We don't have to be looking around. Everybody just have a personal moment with God. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. You're so wonderful. I know we're, we're doing the whole social distancing thing, but if you feel 
led to come down to the altar uh, in a symbol of just stepping out in faith, feel free to do so. But God will meet you wherever you're at. Father, thank you so much. You're so wonderful. Lord, you've been so good to us. God, I pray that you would protect everyone's mind here. Lord, help us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, to have our loins girt about with truth and have uh, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I pray that you would uh, apply those components to every person today because your word says that if we put on your armor, we'll be able to withstand the wiles of the devil, that no matter what comes against us and we've done everything we can to stand on our own two feet, you take care of the rest, God. And when we've done all to stand, we can stand in the midst of the battle, in the midst uh, of the struggle in our mind between the flesh and the spirit, God. We can stand with your strength, not ours, because we know we would crumble under the weight of these spiritual things, but God, you prop us up. You hold us up with your hand. Your armor is your covering that you put on us, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here that uh, has never been baptized in the name of Jesus and has never experienced your spirit dwell inside their heart with evidence of speaking in tongues, fill somebody with the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus Christ. God, put your spirit inside of someone today. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would minister in a special way to each person. Lord, we trust you. We give our trust to you. Your word says that your name's a strong tower where the righteous run into it and are safe. Protect us, God, and renew our minds. Help us to keep our flesh on the altar at all times. Thank you, Jesus. Mm, You're so good to us.